Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, dividends, dividends everywhere, but not a drop of water to drink. OK, that is an exaggeration, but we are facing the prospect of an official drought. Millions of people have had hosepipe bans already, and 2.4 billion litres of water are wasted in England every day thanks to leaky pipes. Yet figures obtained by the Lib Dems show that in the last two years, executives at water and sewage companies paid themselves more than £27 million in bonuses, benefits and other incentives, and overall gave themselves £48 million in pay. In Scotland and Wales, though, water is run on a non-profit basis. We're going to hear from Martin Lyons. Martin is an arable farmer in Cambridgeshire and the UK chair of the Nature Friendly Farming Network, and also from Cat Hobbs from the pressure group We Own It. Before we do, though, just a quick reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our wonderful monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep Matharu. We are not bankrolled by oligarchs or non-doms. We can report without fear or favour and hold the rich and the powerful to account because our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So please subscribe, if you can, to the Byline Times. You get more details at our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com and if you have already subscribed thank you martin cat hello how are you both you're right hello very well good afternoon yeah, lovely to have you both on martin i want to have a chat with you firstly and just tell us what you do in cambridgeshire as an arable farmer and what impact this kind of weather is having on you yeah so um, we're predominantly an arable based farm growing combinable crops like wheat barley beans we also have some lands uh, we have some sheep grazing on and uh, this, the current dry period has been going on for months and uh, we just haven't seen any rain on our crops. So that means the output will be down uh, on our spring crops and it's a really precarious time. And for many farmers who have access to water, taking it from rivers or underground water supplies or reservoirs, that's also running out. So many farmers are seen going to see less production in the coming months. And what does that mean for us then as consumers? Well, we're going to see less crops available. The quality of some of the vegetables and uh, other things will, won't be as nice because you won't have the moisture to fill and swell those uh, you know, fruits and vegetables. Um, but we also need the supermarkets to recognise the challenge we have so more of the produce fits on the shelves. So does that mean perhaps being a bit more liberal in terms of what they deem to be acceptable as a vegetable to sell? Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing stories this week of where the cauliflowers haven't quite made the specification of being big enough because there was lack of moisture. So the whole crop gets destroyed because the supply chain doesn't want to change its specification. Seriously. Uh, Although we're encouraged these days to buy wonky vegetables or strange fruits, very often then the supermarkets will simply reject them because they believe that we as consumers don't want them. That's right. And we're seeing huge food waste at a time yeah, when, when the cost of food is going up for everybody uh, and, and farmers are getting forced to throw, throw food away. I, mm. I, think, I think it's a terrible shame. I mentioned a figure there that 2.4 billion litres of water are wasted in England every day thanks to leaky pipes. Now, assuming I could wave a magic wand and end those leaks, would that make any difference to your farming practices on a day-to-day basis? 
not to my farm because the, the water that comes through pipes uh, is is for drinking and for you know watering livestock. Uh, we need that grain ground water reservoir. What we're finding is the water companies uh, are pumping more and more water out of the ground reservoirs. That means there's, there's lower in the water table, and a lot of that water they're pumping into the pipes. They're allowing to leak and drain away. So it's just a complete waste of a product. Mm. But there is a connection then between the lack of water, for example, for watering your garden, the water that is sometimes then wasted through the leaking pipes because of where it's extracted and the your ability to farm. Absolutely, definitely. Uh, farmers are having water restrictions put on them now because the water companies take priority. So they are taking the first draw out of any underground reservoir or water course, and the farmers is is, is the last in their line. Uh, so that means our food production can't be watered to put the you know food on the table this winter. Yeah, uh, just curious as well. I'm sure listeners will be interested to know this. You're an arable farmer, so that's vegetables and crops and so on. Is the same kind of pressure generated by drought on meat and dairy farmers? Yeah, because uh, many of the livestock farmers have had cut some hay or silage, but it's like our lawns, the grass has stopped growing. So instead of using that food in the winter, they're, they're starting to have to feed the livestock, feed the livestock now, their winter rations. So it's causing huge problems to the livestock farmers. You say that we've had this drought coming for months now. It's been building up for months. Is this just one of those things? Or as a farmer, do you look at climate change and think this is something that we're going to have to get used to? The science and the facts clearly show that uh, our summers are going to become more volatile. We're going to have hotter, drier summers and sometimes really wet summers. But that volatility is coming and we seem seem to see little practical action in, into getting ready for the climate, climate, climate crisis we're currently facing. Yeah, you feel that the water companies, that, that we as a, as a nation are not gearing up for what are inevitable problems being stored? Not at all. I mean, there's no urgency and there's no uh, rush to get this done. They're talking of projects in 10 and 20 years' time. We were allowing too much leakage and we're allowing that to happen now. This needs tackling now, or else we won't have enough water, particularly in the southeast, to, to, to water the crops, to, to water the population and all the needs we want to have from our water supply. Mm. Uh, Kat Hobbs is with us from We Own It. And Kat, you're a pressure group that believes in public ownership of our water resources. What difference do you think it would make in this current situation? So I think, as Martin said, you know, we're in a situation where we've got climate crisis already. It's going to get worse. And, you know, sorry to be gloomy, but they're predicting that England will have water shortages in 25 years time. Um, but of course, you know, right now in, in hot summers, we have shortages. And what we have is um, privatised water companies in England who their priority is not to uh, take care of our countryside, take care of our rivers and seas, you know, help out our farmers, um, lower bills for consumers. Their priority is to make money for their shareholders and for their CEOs. Um, so since our water was privatised by Margaret Thatcher in 1989, shareholders have received on average around £2 billion a year. That's all money that could have been reinvested back into our infrastructure to tackle leaks, um, to make sure that we're, we have clean rivers and seas. 
um, the CEOs of these water companies. Um, as you highlighted, you know, there's, there's been, um, you know, there's the story about, about bonuses in the news today. On average, those CEOs earn £1.7 million a year. Um, so the money is flowing to investors all around the world. It's flowing to the CEOs. It's not flowing into um, delivering the infrastructure that this country actually needs. I find it intriguing that we have a UK government, but of course we have various devolved parliaments. And although Scotland and Wales have a different model to each other, in both cases, in Scotland and Wales, water is run on a non-profit basis. So it's not as though within these islands it is a radical thought to suggest that water companies should not be treated as some kind of commodity. I think that's a really good point. You know, the model that we have in England is actually a very strange one. We didn't just give private companies the right to uh, operate water services to deliver our water. We actually sold off our assets wholesale um, to private companies. So, um, you know, so for example, in other other countries like France, um, they did privatise water, but they did it with contracts and now they've brought those in-house and they've been able to, many, many cities in France have been bringing water back into public ownership because privatisation failed. But as you say, we don't even need to go as far as France. Um, If you look at what's happening in Scotland, where you have Scottish water, that's a really great example of what public ownership can deliver. Um, So the Scots um, weren't happy to let Thatcher privatise their water. Um, Nobody in the UK actually thought that that water privatisation was a good idea. People could see that it didn't make sense. Um, but the Scots really pushed back against it. And so Scottish Water is in public ownership um, and it invests £72 more per household per year. So what that means in terms of big picture investment in infrastructure is that if England had copied the Scottish model, we would have spent £28 billion more on improving our infrastructure since privatisation. And you can imagine how that might have meant we don't get the kind of sewage leaks that we see in our rivers and seas. We have healthy rivers and seas. You know, we save more water. We mend pipes and infrastructure instead of just letting that money leak away with the water. It's not as though the water companies have invested nothing, though, is it? I'm looking at figures here from Ofwat, which is the water regulator, and they look at the total expenditure of water companies and between 2005-2010 something in excess of 10 billion pounds was invested it did fall a little under 10 billion pounds this is the aggregate investment by water companies it it did fall just below 10 billion pounds between 2010 and 2015 and between 2015 and 2020 it has increased again, above £10 billion. So although it makes a great headline to talk about the bonuses and the wages given to water company executives, in fairness, those private companies are themselves making investments. And if they didn't make the investment, if they didn't exist to make the investment, then we as taxpayers would have to make that investment and that would mean higher taxation. Well, that's not quite right. So, so what's happened is that the water companies have used our bills to invest. So they haven't added anything to the picture. So if you look at what's happened since privatisation, the water companies started out, they had the debt written off. So there was zero debt when they started out in 1989. They've built up a debt mountain 
um, over the past 30 years of 53 billion pounds. Um, and then they've spent 72 billion pounds on shareholders. Um, so what they've essentially done is they've used the fact that they've got monopolies um, to, to leverage that into more money. So it's a kind of financialized system where they make money because they have guaranteed revenue. Um, and so, you know, have they ever invested anything into the infrastructure? Yes, they have. But that's been from our bills, our money that we've been giving them. And by the way, the promise of privatization was supposed to be um, our bills would go down and we'd get higher quality services. Instead, our bills have gone up by 40 percent. Um, and I would argue we've got absolutely terrible services um, with you know, the fact that they haven't been able to, to deal with the most basic kind of infrastructure investment. There was a, there was a brief um, increase in, in investment at the start of privatisation. Um, that was a lot to do with EU rules around what, you know, making sure that they clean up rivers and seas. And then it's just completely flatlined. Um, and if you look at the money that shareholders put in, there's a very interesting um, graph on the National Audit Office website which shows the money that they put in just kind of a flat line and then the massive increase in debt that they've had since privatization so they've been using their position um, to make as much money as possible for their investors which is what private companies do you can't blame them for that but why would we put them in charge of such a crucial bit of infrastructure such a crucial um, asset for this country so when Ofwat say, and I'm quoting now from their websites, they say this is the water regulator fact. Investments has roughly doubled since privatisation in 1989. You're not questioning the fact that investment in the water industry has doubled since 1989. You're, you're saying, though, that the money for that investment hasn't come from risk-taking shareholders. It has come from customers themselves, the profits from their water bills being ploughed back into the industry, which would happen anyway if it were publicly owned. Exactly, exactly. And as I say, we have to make that comparison with how we could have done it. We have to look at Scotland where, if we'd done it the way Scotland's done it, we'd have spent an extra £28 billion. You know, of course there has to be investment. A lot of this infrastructure is quite old. You know, it needs upgrading. Money has to be spent. But what private companies um, do when they take over public services, especially things like water, is they, you know, they, they get public investment for things like, you know, the Thames Super Sewer, and they use our bills and the money that we give them um, to make investment um, while returning a very, very healthy profit for their shareholders. And I think it's really important to stress the fact that water is a monopoly. You know, it's a fairly obvious point, but it's really crucial. You don't get a choice about your water company, who you pay your bills to. You know, I pay Thames Water. That's it. That's, they're my water company. I'm not a consumer in a market. Um, you know, choosing um, and neither is anyone else. And so um, what we really need is, you know, these companies to actually have public purpose embedded in how they operate. Um, but instead, you know, they're thinking about their shareholders in, in Canada, in Australia, in Hong Kong, Malaysia, China, um, and, and making sure that, that those investors are getting their return. Martin, from a farmer's perspective, does it matter who runs your water company or is the key thing ensuring that water is available to you? I think key thing is water is available, but also the, the investment in the infrastructure. Uh, because actually in the southeast, we've seen huge amounts of development. So we're going to have a growth area at a driest area of the country. And how are we going to move water about and manage it strategically at a national scale 
Uh, and I think that's that's where we really need to be looking at is what is the plan for the future and how do we get uh, some of that sharehold dividend helping to in- invest in some of that plan. Yeah. And from a farmer's point of view, then, you, you seem to be saying, you know, not from an ideological perspective, but just because it would help one of the, the core industries of this country, we need a, a a national eye on this, some national coordination to ensure that we adapt properly for climate change and that people like you are able to do your job as efficiently as possible. Yeah, that's right. And we also must look at the uh, winter flows. How do we store more water at those high rainfall events rather than just let it run out? Where do we have the landscape capacity to hold and slow the flow and store that for those drier periods? We're not short on water. We just don't use it very efficiently. And at those high flow rates, we let off out to the sea when we should be storing more of it for those dry periods. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point as well. Cat making uh, a very important point about how we as consumers don't really have a choice. It's it's not as though I can say, living in Birmingham, I don't want Seven Trent, thank you very much. I'm going to get my supplies from Thames Water. That isn't an option that is available to me. And in the same way, if you've got uh, water coming from the skies into England, it, it's not as though we don't have enough water, we just aren't storing it, conserving it and using it well enough. There isn't, in that sense, a water shortage at all. No, I know many farmers have been seeing this, the climate change and they're changing their farming practices to make their soil healthier and filtrate water more and store water more within, within the fields. But also some are investing into water storage facilities because they are getting increasingly concerned with it uh, availability on these dry periods so the farmers are trying to do their part but we just need that bigger national strategy to make sure this works at a, at a fair pace because times are getting tight and the water's getting less and we need to act fast yeah cat you know it strikes me we're, we're at the moment we're hearing various appeals to you know pl- we've all got a part to play to reduce our water consumption and uh, my sense is that if we had a water industry that was collectively owned, then appealing to that collective responsibility would be more effective than at the moment where we're told that we're all part of the solution, but we don't all share in the very handsome rewards if water is saved. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think you know, people understand that it's hot in the summer and you have to use water carefully. Most people understand that, you know, that situation will get worse. There will be more shortages, you know, expected in this country. So we have to be planning for this now. But I think you're absolutely right. You know, right now, um, there's a handful of people who are profiting who aren't really part of finding the solution. But actually, you know, both individuals and communities, lots of people want to help create solutions. You know, people feel worried about climate change. They feel like they want to look after the natural environment. You know, they want English rivers and seas to have, you know, fish in them and to have wildlife and and, and to, to be part of creating positive change in the world. And I think it would be a lot easier to do that with public ownership. And that, that wouldn't be the kind of, you know, the sort of stereotype of top-down public ownership it would be about communities being part of 
um, a public solution for people rather than profit. And, you know, the publicly owned water companies could have a remit and a mandate to work really closely with, you know, for example, river action groups around the country who want to clean up our rivers. Um, it just it completely breaks my heart at the moment when you hear these stories about what's happening to our wildlife. I know that's, you know, that's one bit of it that maybe some people don't think about, but but lots of people do. And, you know, and the impact that has on, on, on wildlife, but also on communities, like people don't want to jump in the river or the sea anymore because they're scared about getting sick. And rightly so, because, um, you know, a, a survey from Surface Against Sewage showed that around half of people have got sick after doing wild swimming, you know, because of the level of pollution. So, yes, I think people want positive solutions to these problems. And at the moment, privatisation is a real barrier to that. Mm. Uh, one thing that I don't quite understand, and maybe you can enlighten me, is that there have been a lot of reports about some water companies anyway pumping raw sewage into rivers or into the sea. So one of them, for example, Southern Water, was fined £90 million for dumping raw sewage off the south coast between 2010 and 2015. Given that there is this action taken against them, how can it be in their financial interest to dump raw sewage it costs them money well i think the thing is that they what they don't want to do is invest the significant sums of money needed to upgrade the infrastructure so they would rather pay the fines that they're that they're given for killing thousands of fish making children sick etc um than actually make that investment so they've made they've made a cold hard calculation um and the fact is that you know yes Fines that are millions of pounds sound like quite, quite a lot of money. But when you think about the fact that, you know, shareholders make two billion pounds every year, um, you know, that these chief execs are earning millions of pounds already. Actually, these fines are too small to have a real impact. So you think that the water companies see these fines as part of the cost of doing business? Exactly. Exactly. They factor it in. You know, it's essentially small, small change to them. Um, and what you've got is a situation also where the Environment Agency has been um, increasingly underfunded, so it cannot take on these water companies and what they're doing. The water companies effectively mark their own homework. They report on, you know, sewage leaks and all of that. Um, and so, you know, the, the whole industry is in a, in a complete mess, really, where they can get away with, with anything, um, you know, and just and just pay the fine, and, and as you say, you know, see that as a cost of doing business. I just think it's a disgraceful way to treat our natural environment. You know, we should have a company with a public purpose that that has a you know a duty to look after our countryside and our rivers, and and to look after the natural resources that we've got in this country. And that has to be the future. Yeah, I mean, we have seen a number of. Water companies, sadly, in recent years, I mean, that most recent incident with Southern Water there, we refer back was 20, 2015, but we have seen, sadly, a continuation from other companies of sewage being dumped into rivers and seas. Southern say uh, these were related to activities which took place about seven years ago. They say they have made huge changes in their business, and they say in terms of the management, the culture, it absolutely doesn't happen today. Martin, before we go, I just want to ask you one final question, and it's a simple one. If you were in charge of the water industry in England uh, and you were viewing it from your perspective as a farmer, what what would you do? What do we need to do to help you? Have a, have a joined up approach, landscape scale of holding the store in more water, 
putting an investment into uh, that infrastructure and stopping the leaks and getting communities, businesses and everybody on board. This is for everybody to do and no one business should be profiteering out of it more than anyone else. And we all need to pull together and actually plan for the climate crisis and biodiversity crisis we have in front of us and and actually deliver at a a landscape scale. Kat, uh, before we go then, what's what's the one thing you would say to the government? Because clearly, from the current government's perspective, the ownership of water companies isn't on the agenda. Your campaign isn't on the agenda. How would you persuade them that it ought to be? I would say... uh... A majority of red wall voters think that water should be in public ownership. It's always around 60 to 70 percent of the population think water should be in public ownership. Um, And and that's because the system isn't working right now. Um, It's working for shareholders around the world. It's not working for the people of this country. And we have a government that did promise us to that it would take back control, you know, and and if that was supposed to mean that we would have some kind of control over key industries in this country you know key public services well right now we have no control um and so we do need to actually (laughs) have control of these water companies which are doing um absolutely essential work we can't do without them none of us can do without them so why not have them working for the people of this country Kat, thanks for your time today. That's Kat Hobbs from We Own It. Also been hearing from Martin Lines, a farmer in Cambridgeshire and also the UK chair of the Nature Friendly Farming Network. Thank you, Martin. Nice to make your acquaintance. You've been listening to Byline Radio or if you're listening on Catch Up to the Byline Times podcast. Don't forget, our work is supported by subscribers to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper. Do get a subscription if you can. Go to bylinetimes.com for more details. That's bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. We'll see you again soon. Bye now. Cheers.